Well, this is kind of part three of this, this short series on chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. Be alert, stand firm. And if there's a subtitle to the message, it is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Sometimes I think I wish I knew when. Other times I'm glad I don't know when. But he is coming back, that's for sure. And as I've said before, when we get into anything that's dealing with end times, there's always controversy. People don't agree on everything. We can't understand it for sure. And I just want to say I don't have the truth on all of this stuff that I'm going to share with you. So some of it's just what I believe the Word says, what I believe the Bible shows us through studying and looking at other scriptures. But I want you to know that uh, um, I could be wrong. You never thought you'd hear that, did you, honey? <laughs> yeah, write it down. <laughs> Date it. It may never happen again. <laughs> well, we're up to about verse 10 of the Gospel of Mark, 13th chapter. Uh, some of the scriptures I will be putting up, or they will be putting up on the screen. Some of them won't be up there, not all of them. But I just wanted to start there. Mark chapter 13, verse 10 says this. We've been talking about the birth pangs, the beginning of birth pangs, these things that are happening. And what God put on my burden is we're not to be distracted by what things are going on in the world around us. You know, we can get so wrapped up in trying to figure out, oh God, and I mean, I'm, and I'm not trying to put anybody down because I think this way and say these things too, but gee, we got a pandemic, the world's got to be coming to an end. Gee, Putin's massing troops and the, the world's going to blow up and the, the wars and rumors of war, the world's coming to an end. The economy is ready to jump in the toilet and the world's coming to an end. You know, we can go down this list of things and our focus is totally wrong. Totally wrong. If what we're doing is trying to look at and to see when it's going to happen, what's going to happen. Because one thing we'll see in the, the Gospel of Mark, and we see throughout the Scripture, Jesus makes this very, very clear in all of his teachings. You don't know when. We aren't going to know when. But eventually there will be a sign. We've been looking at the birth pangs. And I would say from my perspective, these things aren't the sign. There is a sign, not signs, the way I read my Scripture. So it's going to get bad, and this isn't bad yet. Not great, but this is nothing compared to what's going to come eventually. And in verse 10, it says, The gospel must be first preached to all the nations before the end comes. And what I want to point out is I want to read a couple verses around that verse. So if I can find the right book of the Bible there. Uh, Verse 9 before this says, be on your guard, for they're going to deliver you to the courts. You're going to be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my stake as a testimony to them. Verse 11, and when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who will speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And verse 12, and brothers will deceive brother or deliver brother to death, a father, a child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all on my account, on the account of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's interesting that right in the middle of those verses is verse 10. The gospel will be preached. 
in the middle of this persecution, the gospel is to be preached. And I believe that this is the significant part of all of this that Jesus is teaching. Not, not about the specific events. He's just, he's, he's, hey, I'm warning you. I'm telling you beforehand so you'll know. But really as important is to stay on mission. Stay on mission. The gospel is going to be preached in the midst of the worst of the worst when it comes. And a lot of time we hear people say that nothing like this can happen yet because the uh, temple couldn't be destroyed until the end comes. We know from history that the temple was actually destroyed in about 70 AD by Titus and the Roman army. And then when we look at the gospel has to be preached to all the nations. Now, I've said that, I've heard that, I've thought that, and said, well, you can't come back yet. The gospel hasn't gotten here or here or here. I'm going to show you a couple of verses just quickly that confuse me because I thought I understood for sure. But in Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes these words to the church in Colossae. He says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of gospel, which has come to you as it has also came to the whole world and is bringing forth fruit. This is Paul writing this in the first century to the whole world. In verse 23, he says, If indeed ye continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. First century. And then, of course, in Revelation in chapter 14, we hear that one of the angels that God's going to send is going to all go to all the four corners of the earth doing what? Bringing the gospel. So my thinking sometimes needs to be adjusted when I look at some of these things. Paul thought, and Paul says to me very clearly to the church in Colossus, that the gospel had been preached to every creature. No wonder they thought the end was coming really, really quick 2,000 years ago. So sometimes I need to put away my mental calculator that's trying to figure out when it's time, when he's going to come, Instead, refocus on what I'm called to do, what you're called to do, what we're all called to do, and to not be distracted. And in verse 13, all men will hate you because of me. I think this one's on the screen. Yes. They'll hate you, but he who endures and stands firm to the end will be saved. And boy, there's a lot of opinions of what that verse means. I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and then you can check me out and come to your own conclusion. But I am pretty certain we are not saved by any kinds of works. Not by anything we can do. So I do not believe it's saying, boy, I'm saved. I earned my salvation because I endured to the end. I don't think it says that. And I don't think it says I'm saved because I did not renounce my faith during the horrible time of the end, and I endured to the end, therefore I am saved. I don't believe it says that. What I believe it's referring to is this. The tribulation, the things that we go through, the trials and tests that we go through, true believers 
who truly know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will endure to the end. And there's going to be a separation that takes place when these kinds of trials and tests and tribulations come. Look at 1 John 2, verse 18 and 19. John is writing these words, and he says, this is how we know it's the last hour. And he's writing this in the first century. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. And I would add, in the first place. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged. Paul, John is writing that in the first century. I believe it was happening in the first century. Persecution came, challenges came, and all of a sudden there was a weeding out. And people were leaving. And I can just about imagine, it's like, what are they doing? Why, how can they leave? They know Jesus. They proclaim Jesus. They've said they're believers. They even gathered in the synagogue with us. They, they came and heard the teaching with us. They sat in the room with us in the house and broke supper with us and had communion with us. How could they possibly leave? And John's saying, they weren't really with us. The persecution, the trials, and the testings will prove our faith. I believe that's what's being said for those who endure to the end. If we're truly saved, it's not going to be fun. If we're going to be the ones that get to live, if we're that generation, which I'm pretty doubtful of, but it's not going to be good. You know, we already complain and whine a little bit about the small persecution we get. Just try to put ourselves in North Korea or China or many of the Muslim nations of the earth. And God extends the grace to you to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe he showed up in a dream one night in your house and you wake up the next morning, you're born again, and your parents and your family are all Muslims. And in your exuberance, you share Jesus. And then they kill you. Persecution is coming. But those who are truly saved, I believe, will endure to the end. In verse 14, the first part of the verse, we finally get to what I believe is the sign that was talked about earlier. He says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, That's the sign you're going to know it's about to come to a conclusion. Something's coming. If we would read this same story in the Gospel of Matthew, we would see that it tells us that Jesus is referring and making reference to the book of Daniel, the prophecies of Daniel in chapter 9. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes this to the church in Thessalonica. He says, You'll know when the man of sin takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God and telling all the world, he is God and you will worship me. I believe that what is, that is what the abomination of desolation is. When this, I believe, it's a person. Some people do not believe it's a person. They believe it's a governmental system. I, there's, Jesus even makes it sound like it's a person. I believe it's the Antichrist. And I believe he's saying this is the sign. When you see this happen... We're beyond birth pangs now. Here comes the delivery is going to happen. The Antichrist is in the temple of God declaring himself to be God and declaring that we worship him. 
This is why one of the reasons why so many people expect that the temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's why there's organizations, there's a temple institute that's been getting the, the implements, of the, all of the tools that you would need to do worship and sacrifice like they did before Jesus came on the scene. And they get excited about that. And some of us might even think, all right, once that temple gets going, you know, I just encourage you, that's not God's heart. That idea to rebuild that temple, it, it may, it's prophesied quite possibly, and it probably is going to happen. I don't know that for sure. But I am certain of this. It's not God's desire that they build the temple and start sacrificing animals again unto him. That's not what God would want. His son was the sacrifice, and it was the only one that would forgive sin, and it's finished. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, because this whole thing, it looks like it's going to be an abomination. It's going to become so clear whether you believe and you are part of the body of Christ and the army of God or whether you proclaim to be and you might even be self-deluded enough to think you are, but you aren't. And it's going to really separate the wheat from the chaff. Those days are coming. Chapter 14. Excuse me, 13, starting in the last part of verse 14. I'm going to break this next section into three pieces because when this happens, there's some things, three really horrible things begin to take place immediately. Matthew even uses the word immediately. In verse 14b, it says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When is this? We're talking about, don't lose track of where we're at. The abomination of desolation is in the temple. I believe it's the Antichrist. And it then says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to even get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. I believe what's saying there really is simply this. When the abomination of desolation appears, you don't want to be anywhere near Jerusalem because it's going to get really bad really fast. And he uses these word pictures for us to say it's going to get bad. And it's going to happen suddenly, almost without warning. And then it goes on and says, starting in verse 19, For those days will be a time of tribulation since has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will be. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he had chose, he shortened the days. There is going to be a worldwide tribulation that's going to come immediately following the Antichrist setting himself up as God. And it's going to be an unprecedented time of trouble. Now, now think about that, what that really means. I must have been kind of ugly when the flood came and it started raining. Sodom and Gomorrah was not a place to go and have a picnic. More modern times, World War I was ugly. World War II was ugly. We look around what's taking the place in the world, and we go, oh boy, cataclysmic things could happen. 
But what we're hearing here from Mark is that's nothing. What's going to happen has never been seen before, nothing like it ever, and nothing like it will ever happen again. Praise God, because Jesus will be back. But this is what he's telling us. There is going to be something that we can read about in the book of Revelation. We, we went through this some time ago, but in the book of Revelation, just go back again and look at when they open the vials, the bowls of judgment, the trumpets, the seven trumpets. Go back and reread that, and you'll say, okay, we've not seen anything like that ever. The economic crunch that's going to take place because all commerce is going to be centralized and controlled. The mark of the beast. And the days were shortened. Now, when you read that, you might think right away, they shortened the days. Wow, good. We went from a 24-hour day to a 12-hour day or an 18-hour day. I don't believe that's what it means at all. He shortened the time, the length of time, the number of days. Thank goodness the tribulation doesn't go on for 20, 30, 40 years. We get to that middle point of tribulation, and it's three and a half years, and the clock runs out. He shortened the length of time, and it says if he hadn't shortened the length of time, no one would have survived. He's telling all this because it says it's coming. It's going to happen. And the third thing that takes place, we can see in verses 21 and 22. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, don't believe him. The false Christ and false prophets are going to arise, and they'll show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, this may not agree with your theology and the way you read that verse. I hear there that it's not possible for God's elect to truly elect, to be displayed. But many, many people are going to. And they're going to be people in places of influence, churches, ministries, who knows. But it's going to be a major, major worldwide religious deception. It's all going to take place. In verse 23, Mark writes these words that Jesus spoke, but he says, take heed. Behold, it's like saying, pay attention, be alert, behold, be looking around. I have told you everything in advance. And I would add, so don't worry about it. Don't be distracted by it all. I've told you it's coming. Don't be surprised. Don't let what's happening draw all your attention over here because I've called you to go and make disciples of all nations, to share the good news of the gospel. I've given you all a task. I've given you a job to do. Don't let what's happening dissuade you. That's why I'm telling you so you're not caught off guard. You shouldn't be surprised. Some mornings I wake up and if I accidentally listen to the news, I go, man, I can't believe that's happening. I should go, wow, it's okay, God. At least we're in the birth pangs. Something's crazy. And it's easy to get cynical about this. If you've never gotten cynical about this, you're a better person, a better Christian than me. Because sometimes I think, wait a minute. I just read what Mark said. I just read what John wrote in First John. And they were waiting for it to happen. They were living every day if that was the day Jesus was coming back. 2,000 years ago for crying out loud. 
What's wrong with us stupid Christians? It's nothing but a storybook. It's easy to start thinking that way. Is he going to come back this year? I don't know. He could. I don't think so. Ten years? I don't know. Thirty years? I'm not sure. Three hundred years? I don't know. I pray to God it's not 3,000. But we don't know. And that's what he's saying. We don't know. But be, be, be watchful that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, however long it is. So why is he telling us that? What good does it do to us for us to anticipate that? I think it would help us to be living lives much more like we can read about in the Word of God. They were assuming Jesus was coming back. They had to be busy. They had to be doing the work of the kingdom. They had to be building the kingdom. They had to be focused on the things of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. They had to be focused on enhancing and growing the body of Christ. When we do that, it 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 will have a purifying effect on our lives. There are so many things that, you know, that's one thing about going to a retreat and hearing good teaching. You get convicted all to pieces. There are so many things that I could remove from my life and they would do nothing that would bring about nothing bad in my life. They would all bring beneficial things. So why don't I do them? I don't want to. (laughs) If I really believed he could be coming back any moment, it would purify and have a purifying impact on my life. It would change the way I lived. It would give you, and I believe it would give me, a sense of urgency like we've never had before. You know, I know I should go do this for the Lord. I know the gospel. I should share this with my friends at work, but, man, they'll think I'm an idiot. I know I should. I know I should. Maybe I will. I don't know. Man, alive, if I believe that he could come back any day, urgency. I need to talk. I need to share. I need to be about the Lord's work. It'll give us a boldness that we don't normally have. Just remember to keep love as you get bold. All of a sudden, if Jesus was coming back, and somehow or another you really knew he was coming in a week, got any family members you'd be a little more bold to share Jesus with? Got any friends? Got any coworkers? Boy, I, I would like to think we would be a lot more bold. Because we believe as Christians... They're all going to, we're all going to live forever. It's just where? And I don't know that I understand a whole lot about hell, but I know what I understand is not where I want you or anybody else to go. And it's so bad that Jesus himself says that he desires that none should perish. And therefore, in his magnificent plan, he said, so you guys go spread the good news of the gospel. And it'll help us keep a light hold on the things of the world. Don't we love being blessed with worldly things? And I don't know that there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being blessed by worldly things. But it's when we become so entangled in those things of the world. When they become so important to us. Doesn't matter what you have or how much you have or how little you have. You know, we can be greedy when we have one dollar in a bank, or we can be greedy when we have a million dollars in the bank. It has nothing to do with the dollar amount, it has to do with our heart. 
We need to hold on to the things of the world lightly. And I think if we, we re- believe like they did in the first century, we'd hold on to things a lot more lightly. All right, ready to get to the good news? All right, I am. The climax of all of history is about to happen, according to Jesus. He is now saying, I've been telling you all this stuff, and it's ugly. And it's going to happen. But I want you to stay watchful. Watch what you're doing. Watch what you're doing. Watch what you're doing. Stay focused. Stay focused. I believe that's his message. Not so much to stand and look up in the sky and wait for something to happen up there. No, look out here. Look at the world around us. Look where he's planted you. Spread the good news of the gospel and keep about your business. In Mark chapter 13, now starting at verse 24. In those days, <clears throat> what days? The days of the abomination of desolation. In those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that are in the heavens will all be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. And again, as I said in Matthew 24, it says immediately after these days of tribulation. Something big is going to happen. There's going to be a cosmic catastrophe of some sort that we can't even comprehend. I don't know if it's just our galaxy or the entire universe. I don't know, but it's going to be something like no man's ever seen. And in the midst of that, here he comes in power and glory. And I had this conversation with somebody. I don't remember who it was. But the question they asked me was, so Mike, if he's going to come, how can he be seen from everywhere in the world? I don't know. Good trick. But I figured if he can create everything that exists, he can manifest his presence everywhere at once. Since he is omnipresent, right? And then you're going to see the Son of Man coming. And his angels will go collect all those who were proven to be true believers through this time of tribulation. And I personally believe those that actually came to the Lord during that time of tribulation. And then he, he just does what Jesus does when he teaches. All of a sudden, he starts talking about a fig tree. I think he, that's his feminine side. Some of you don't know what I was even saying there. but He just kind of spiderwebbed, but he does it with a point. <laughs> All of a sudden, he says in verse 28, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When it branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. That's what he's just saying. That's it. When you see these tender leaves and the buds come out, it's almost summer, and you aren't going to stop it. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, the abomination of desolation, recognize that he is near, he is right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. When you see the leaves, when you see this taking place, if you're a Jewish person, when you see the fig tree, get the tender sprouts and the, it begins to sprout, we know that summer's here. You could almost say to us in southwest Minnesota, when you see all those ash trees bud and it's so nice and tender, you know what's coming, right? 
Summer's not far away. And that's what he's saying. When you see these things, these signs, the sign of the abomination, when you see this happening, I'm coming. And like you can no more stop summer from coming after the bud starts, you aren't going to be able to stop me from coming because it's going to happen. It's going to take place. And there is that scripture there at the end of that that we probably, many of us have had conversations about. And we've been trying to figure out what generation ever since the Jewish nation got restored, right? Or maybe before. Because what does he say? This generation will not pass away before the end comes. Man, that's led a lot of people to predicting dates. What year did Israel become a nation? 1943, wasn't it? 48. Thank you. Well, how long is a generation? Well, some people say it's only 27 years. Most people say it's like 45 years. How many of you know we have not been raptured yet? So, what generation? I There's no doubt in my mind he was not speaking about that generation. I believe he's speaking about the generation that's alive to see the abomination uh, set up in the temple. That that generation, it's coming. You're going to still be here. Now, there are people, again, I would just remind you, people disagree on these things, for sure. Some people think that uh, it was supposed to happen a long time ago, as I said, because of the generation. Some people actually, and some theologians who study the original language, say that that generation could also mean race or people. In other words, this Jewish race, my people, will not pass away. Um, I just don't think that's correct. I think it's those that are still alive. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. God's word is certain, everybody. He's, it's, it's certain. You can stake your life on this word. It's true. It's never going to change. But he goes on again in verses 32 and 33, like, come on, guys, you need this reminder. I keep saying it. I mean, go through this chapter alone and see how many times he says some version of stay awake, be alert, be on your guard, keep your eyes open, wake up. It's just over and over. He knows we can be tempted to lose our focus. He knows we can get so wrapped up in our life, which it's easy to do, that we lose our focus completely on what we're really supposed to be doing. We can get our eyes on all the end time stuff that can be out there and we lose our focus completely. He just keeps reminding, and he's reminding his disciples, for goodness sakes. He knows we need to be reminded. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. In verse 32, he says, but of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And then he says, take heed, keep on the alert, for you don't know when the appointed time will occur. And he repeats in 35, be on alert. Be on alert in verse 37. Be on alert. The important thing is, I'm telling you all this stuff's happening. Don't be surprised. So that's all going to happen. It's, it's really going to happen. But don't worry about it. Don't be surprised. Watch. Stay alert. Stay focused. Stay on task. And this may be a way you've not looked at the next few verses before. And I tell you that to say I've not necessarily always looked at it this way either. So there may be other ways to look at it. 
But I think it's amazing that all of a sudden he comes with another story about a man getting ready to go on a journey. Everything he's talking about in time. So somehow or other, his, his warning to us to stay awake and to watch and keep doing what we're doing, it has to have something to do with that, I think. The context requires it. So here's what he says. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether evening or midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. And I know, I can remember years ago when I'd read these stories, I'd always think, gee, we... I'm going to just walk around like this, looking for him coming on that great white horse with the angels and the trumpet. And it's like, gee, I like that. That's a lot easier than doing the task that he's called the church to do. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I can spend a lot of time studying that. And I'm saying, go ahead, study it. But don't forget what we're really called to do. It's more a, way more than a exercise of intellect, although that's important. What are we supposed to watch for? I don't believe it's the master's return. I believe, and I know I'm beating a dead horse here, right? It's stay awake. Watch. Watch. So that nobody deceives you. We don't want anybody to enter the house. Ruin it. Wreck it. Steal all that we have. So notice in that verses, those verses that I just read, he leaves his servants with three things. See the three things he leaves his servants with? I believe that's us. I believe the house could make me reference to his church. If you want to look at it that way, see what it says to you. What did he leave us with? He left us with the house. Maybe it's the church. I don't mean the building. I mean the church. And he left us his authority. He says he put his servants in charge. He gave an authority to the servants. He has given an authority to the church. He's given us the authority that he had on earth to continue the work that he was doing when he was here. He's given us authority. And then he's also giving us a task. What does it say? He gave every one of them a task to accomplish. We all have a task, and he's equipped every one of us for the task that he's called us to specifically. He's called the church to spread the gospel, but in the church he's given us a whole bunch of different people with a whole bunch of different gifts, a whole bunch of different talents, and he says, just stay focused, use your task, or use your gifts, use your talents, to accomplish the task of demonstrating my love to people, of expanding the kingdom of God, doing all of these things for his glory. When I read that and I look at it that way, it takes on a a much more powerful meaning to me. It's not just a random house. It's just not random servants. It's not a little decision-making authority. 
It's not some menial job of sweeping the floors. I'm leaving now. Thankfully, he didn't leave us alone. He sent his Holy Spirit. But church, I'm giving you an authority, and I'm giving you work to do. Do it. Do it. And it's no wonder there are temptations and pressures galore that come at us because this is what the Lord wants. Obviously, there's somebody out there who doesn't want it. He has an enemy, right? The devil, Satan. He doesn't want us to accomplish any of these things. He wants to somehow get us to look and get cynical and think, ah, it's all just a story or it's all just a lie. People have been saying these things for 2,000 years. What's the point of living this ridiculously no-fun life of being a Christian? Believe that lie. What's, What's the point? And now, according to what Mike said, he's probably not coming right away, so what do I need to worry about? i got a little while here. Gee, Dad, (laughs) you had your fun. I still have plenty of time to have my fun. No, those are lies that we can fall into, the, the traps, the tricks. We can stop walking in faith. But as we were worshiping, it's like, cow, there's times when I'm praying for some of these situations that we're dealing with here in the church and people's lives. It's like, Lord, soon, <laughs> yesterday, now, are our prayers doing anything? The enemy would love to see us quit walking by faith and walk by sight. Stop believing the truth. Stop believing the truth. Don't let anything or anybody keep you from fulfilling the task that he's called you to do. So what do we need to do? Some simple things. Reject the lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. How do I know it's a lie? Because it doesn't line up with the word of God. It's a lie. We need to reject the lies of the world, the secular voices that are around us, all those voices that are telling us there is no God, or there's one God, and there's many ways to that God, and everybody serves a God, blah, 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 blah. That's just not true, according to the word of God. It might sound nice, and some people even think it sounds more loving than saying there's only one way. But if we're white, right, what's just the most loving thing to do? We need to point them in the right way. With love. Always with love. Don't believe the lies. That if there's a God, he really isn't going to judge us. Come on, he is love. There is going to be a judgment day where every single human being that's ever lived will stand before the throne of God. For those that know him as their Lord and Savior, we're going to get judged and get our reward. Praise God. The others that stand there are going to be cast into eternity, separated from him. A place we call hell. You know, there's a lot of voices speaking a lot of things. That's why I always encourage a man, just because I'm up front, don't believe what I'm saying. Check it out. Test it. Because there's a lot of voices, and anybody can be deceived. Anybody can be wrong. But there are a lot of voices out there telling us things that are just crazy. And when it's really crazy, it's easy to recognize the voice as being a lie. But there's a lot of stuff out there. The enemy is subtle. Subtle. We need to be able to take the good and spit out the bad. 
And we only know what's good and what's bad if we know the Word of God. That's our standard. When the Antichrist comes, you think, you think anybody would follow this guy if they knew you're going to bow to me, worship me, and all hell is literally going to break loose on earth. Now, wait a minute. I'm thinking, that doesn't sound fun. No, he comes bringing peace and prosperity. We're going to unite, and we're all going to be together, and it's going to be the biggest campfire you ever saw, and the choruses of Kumbaya are going to ascend to the throne. No, he's subtle. And the voices we're listening to can be subtle. Jesus knows all these temptations existed then. We're going to exist for his disciples. He knew they were going to be persecuted. He knew most of them were going to end up martyred for the cause. He knew these things. And he says, guys, it's coming. Stay focused. And that's what I believe the primary message is for us. There are so many things going on, so many voices. Stay focused. Stay focused. And we'll be blessed because we're being obedient and we stay focused. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are forewarned. God, we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us be alert, to help us to discern, to give us wisdom, that we're not alone. Though Jesus is seated at your right hand, we're not alone. God, the Holy Spirit lives in us. God, help us to not get wrapped up in current events in such a way that it distracts us. Help us to be aware. Help us to be watchful. But help us to stay focused. Lord, I pray that there's no one here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. Sheer statistics would say if we had this many people together, there's some that are deceived. They don't know it. I pray that you would just reveal yourself in a personal way, that there's a relationship to be had, that it's not about rights and wrongs and do this, do that, or religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, that we need forgiveness for our sins through what Jesus did, and it's offered freely to each and every one. And I pray, God, that anybody here that hears those words would resonate in their spirit, and they would surrender their life today. That no one here ever need to worry about standing before your throne. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Lord, I pray that you would take anything that I may have said that is not of you and just let it fall to the ground and not do damage in anybody's life. We continue to pray and believe and stand on your word. We continue to believe for victory in the lives of each and every one here, in those areas where the trials and tests are tough. We know that you 
can do all things. So, Lord, I pray your blessing upon us as we go in our different directions. Watch over us and keep us safe. God, I pray that we would be even more alert to those divine opportunities, those divine moments when people cross our paths and you prompt us by your spirit to say this or share something, that we would act in obedience. Protect us and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen.